0: This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript the Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS in-depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A., Bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code JavaScriptJabber, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 199 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames... Hey everybody, Dave Smith, hello, I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, a quick shout out for Freelance Remote Conf and React Remote Conf uh, coming up this month and in May, so if you're interested, go check those out, allremoteconf.com. We also have two special guests, we have Chris Diaz, hello, and Eric Gamma, hi, do you gentlemen want to introduce yourselves?
1: Sure, I'll go first. Um, my name is Chris Dias. I am a program manager on the Visual Studio Code team here in
0: Redmond.
2: And I'm Eric Gamma, and I'm leading the development team out of, working out of the lab in Zurich working on Visual Studio Code.
0: All right. Well, do you want to give us a brief overview of what Visual Studio Code is? I think most people in the .NET community and in other programming communities have some idea what Visual Studio is, but this is a bit different, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think it is. I think um I I can sort of give you the the overview of what it is. Visual Studio Code is is we kind of think of it as uh, uh we call it code editing redefined or a code editor redefined. Visual Studio, if you think of that product uh as sort of the 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 base of the conversation, it's an IDE, it's been around for uh, a number of years, it has a tremendous amount of functionality and uh power associated with it. But there are also other tools that people use out in the real world today. You know there's a set of developers that like uh using just plain text editors and code editors and visual studio code is is our entry into the code editor space in the in the sort of family of developer tools that that are out there and so it's it's decidedly more lightweight it has automatic update. There are no tool windows. There's no window docking. Things like that. It is very much a keyboard-oriented coding experience. And the other interesting thing about it is that it runs cross-platform. So Mac, Linux, Windows, wherever you are, uh, Visual Studio Code will be there.
0: Very cool. We we did.
2: And it. it's open source and extensible, right?
0: Yeah, we did an episode a while back on Electron. And my understanding is that's what it's built on.
2: That's correct. It builds on the Electron platform. But um, people often confuse it by thinking we build on Electron plus Atom, but really we build on Electron and everything on top is freshly custom-made code from us, which has quite some interesting history because we started actually building an editor, which is really an online editor that runs in a browser. And then over time, we moved to uh, Electron and made it also able as a desktop application.
0: So are you trying to break in the middle of the Emacs versus VI, uh, VI fight?
1: Well, I don't think we're trying to break into any fights. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess
0: that's my roundabout way of saying there are so many other tools out there. Why another one?
1: Well, we think of it as um, so. the tools are all very, they all have a long history. And what we decided to do was to try to bring some of the great Experiences, what we call it the the core inner developer loop, the core edit, compile, debug experience that is typically found in IDEs or much more heavyweight tools, Uh, bring that down to the editor space, but in a lightweight uh, pluggable and, and, as Eric said, open, open fashion. So, out of the box, um, you get a lot of the great functionality that you would expect in an IDE, but you get it in an editor package. So, great language syntax colorization, um, IntelliSense, um, and with a couple of extensions, you get sort of, you know, end-to-end debugging experiences. And um, throughout all of that, I'm not forcing you into another tool where we actually make it a big principle of the tool is that it has loose coupling with existing tool chains. And so you can shell out to your existing Gulp or Make or CMake or whatever other tools that you have, you can use those with the tool. You don't have to sort of drop everything and come into this. So if you're an editor guy and uh, you want sort of an out-of-the-box, better code editing experience, then we're giving you your editor experience, keyboard focus, plus great IntelliSense, code navigation, understanding, and debugging experiences, quote, out of the proverbial box, even though there is no box.
2: So since you mentioned the fight, right? So there is kind of these two ends of the spectrum, the editor and the IDE. And actually we love them both. So, right, we like the editor, fast startup, keyboard navigation, support open for any tool with the command line. But all the things from the IDE we love, like Chris said, um IntelliSense, debugging, right? And we'd like to find the, a place for Visual Studio Code which is kind of in the middle and hitting the sweet spot that we don't lose the fastness uh, of the editor, but we still get the things we love from IDEs.
0: That makes sense. I mean, I'll admit, most of the time I'm doing Ruby. A lot of the time I'm doing JavaScript. And my preferred weapon of choice is Emacs. But sometimes I just want that debugger in there. And the command line debuggers work some of the time, but not all of the time. So having a visual debugger is really handy. So I I definitely see both ends of the spectrum, and by getting a happy medium, so to speak, it it seems like a nice place to be. Does it support the key bindings for Vim or Emacs?
2: So there is an extension, a Vim extension, which kind of is pretty popular, which is Work in Progress, which supports the the Vim uh, key bindings. I'm not aware of an Emacs one.
0: Well, that's too bad.
2: Well, you know, it's uh, extensible. You can easily write one and uh, publish it to our store, right? Our gallery.
0: Oh, I hear what you did there.
3: Wasn't Vim like one of the most requested uh, features for VS Code, Vim Vim? bindings?
2: It's a popular one, but if you look at uh, Chris, you maybe have the ranking better in memory. But I think uh, on the top, you have another one, right, Chris?
1: Yes. The current. Uh, most requested feature is code folding the vim key bindings is it's in the top 10 i can't remember what it is off the top of my head I'll, I'll look it up here and get it to you in a minute
2: chris mentioned code folding right so the good news is we uh, just started actually we do monthly sprints and we just started in this sprint on code folding
3: yeah can you guys talk about code, code, code folding and what it is for those who don't know yeah, so it's about, fold. say, cold fusion. You don't have to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to hear about that, too.
0: I want him to talk about the promise that I just heard that it's going to be out in a week.
2: Didn't I say? Who said that? No, we do monthly iterations. I right? know. And I'm just putting words in your, take, your mouth. Yeah, yeah. No, and some features take longer than iteration, right? So um, code folding? Well, the idea is now these little twisties on the left that allow you to expand and collapse ranges of code so that if you have a large file you can collapse things you don't want to work with and yeah it's actually a pretty old feature right which visual studio introduced i think 10 years ago and it's now almost people expect it in editors today so we want to fulfill this expectation
0: so is there some concern then that visual studio code might i don't know people might move off of visual studio which is a paid product for microsoft on visual studio code which is free
1: I don't know if it's a it's, it's a concern. I mean, Visual Studio has so many features in it, and it really is the the Cadillac of development tools. I think that what we're seeing is that there's a, a place in a lot of people's toolboxes for uh, a lightweight, fast editor as well as a, a rich IDE. So there's some times when you just want to go in and tweak a file, um, and you want the IntelliSense there, but you don't need to load everything else up. Having Visual Studio is very handy. Um in you know, Visual Studio itself uh, the community edition is very very much full featured and very much uh free as well. So really our focus right now is more about just trying to to reach a, a set of developers that we haven't been able to talk to with Visual Studio as it exists today, right? It's 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 definitely a Windows-based tool and there's a, a lot of folks out there who are on the Mac and on Linux that we don't have an offering for. So now we can have something for them which brings some of those rich experiences from VS into where they are instead of saying hey you know what if you want to have these great experiences you have to come over to visual studio and said uh, we're going where where the developer is
2: and what we're also observing right developers today they are not not all of them are focused on a single tool right they use an ide they use an editor on the side so it's not just one or the other it's just completing a toolbox and give add another tool to the toolbox right just a lightweight editor
1: yeah. Uh, on that point, one of the big things that we look at trying to do is instead of, you know, if you think of Visual Studio as an IDE, an integrated development environment, we think of Visual Studio Code being integrated, not sort of at the, the UI perspective, but more like at the file system, or the asset level. And so with VS Code, you should be able to go in and, you know, you can edit your C Sharp project. Uh, you can go add a file to it. And this, a lot of this comes from the, the platform as well but you don't have to manage uh, project files or solution files or anything like that. And what we really want to do is make it so that it's easy for you to move between these tools without having to be in a particular tool to get sort of all the, the magic that goes behind the scenes. So you're, you'll see more and more of that stuff happen uh, on the Visual Studio side as well as on the, the VS Code side. But again, it's to help people as they do move between tools. If it's If it's a file that's on disk, then pretty much any tool can open and edit it. And that's where we try to... Try to focus,
2: and of course, we just mean we don't we ignore this additional information about the project, but we kind of discover it, right? You just open a folder, and then basically the language extension they discover additional metadata to make it to enrich experience like when you do typescript or javascript development there is a file a config file which describes your project which files are in there which compiler options you use and we discover them right and once you discover them we give you a richer experience it's really kind of this graceful not degradation but upgrade right the more we know about the project the more the richer experience we can give
0: so you, you mentioned typescript and javascript and some of these other languages what language support do you have
2: so okay, that's kind of since we're extensible, right? So it's kind of I would have to go to the gallery. There is kind of some languages which which come bundled with code and which kind of is something you no know, which we, we we make sure that are high quality, like you no know, for for TypeScript and JavaScript, CSS, SAS, JSON. For all these, we have uh, rich languages, which means intelligence. You understand the language. We can validate it. We can make uh, your intelligence proposals, completion proposals. So we have those. Then we have a whole long tail of languages for which we mo- only support coloring. And what's cool is now that we see the community contributing additional languages, right? So have, there is an extension for Rust, for Python, for Ruby. I'm not sure that it even goes deep. And... It's now a really ecosystem of languages, and what we try to do is yeah. we try to give extension writers kind of a toolkit to write uh, a rich language experience. So things that are in this toolkit are, for instance, with an intelligence widget, a peak experience, right, so that when you want to see the definition of a symbol, you can look at it in place. So we give you kind of this toolbox, and uh, the idea is then when someone... adds a language and teaches code a new language, they leverage this toolkit and they get a rich experience and moreover a consistent experience across all the languages. I think it's it's Did I mention C sharp
1: Chris? Did I mention C sharp? No you didn't, but now you did. But I think the other interesting aspect of that is the toolbox that Eric talks about is the exact same toolbox that we use for the built-in language services for TypeScript and JavaScript. It's the same set of APIs that are are being used for what we have built into the tool that other extensions can then take advantage of. And we build these language services that are in the tool as extensions themselves. One other one that that has been very popular that sort of does a good job demonstrating the end-to-end capabilities that an extension can uh, offer up as the Go language service, which has you know, syntax colorization, telesense validation, uh, and even debugging. But it's pulling in all of the sort of the Go platform tools that exist out there and then surfacing that data and that experience in the VS Code uh, UI. Did you guys mention Elm? What's that?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Careful, Chuck. I'm just Googling. No, I'm, I'm sure we don't have a pretty cool Elm extension, actually.
0: <laughs> it's it's just this obscure thing that nobody wants to use. <laughs>
1: there's a there's 107 votes for that on uh, UserVoice. In UserVoice? But I think I saw
4: Elm. Come on. Yeah, there's an extension. I just installed it just to see.
2: Oh, okay. Is it a deep one? Does it give you IntelliSense? Or is it more the coloring level?
4: I guess I'd have to know how to write Elm code to do that. <laughs> I don't know.
2: Okay, I see. I so now, what you make kind of very easy, the first level is syntax, highlighting and snippets, right? Mm-hmm. And the next level then is you really parse and understand the language and have a service for that. And what's interesting for that, this kind of language brain that you build for a language, uh, we run them in a separate process from a VS Code, right? VS Code, the UI, you write in JavaScript, but when you want to integrate your favorite language, then often you already have language infrastructure written in that language. Like the OmniSharp language brain is implemented in C Sharp. So we have one of the architectural principles is that we can run these expensive language brains in a separate process and you can then integrate them s- seamlessly using this language toolkit into Visual Studio Code.
0: Oh, I got you. So since Ruby already has features that know how to parse Ruby... You just hook that in and it runs it in a separate process in Ruby. Yes,
2: right. You have some Ruby, you talk some IPC protocol, RPC style, and you write kind of the integration code uh, in JavaScript to glue it, to adapt it to this language Mm -hmm. toolkit, but the rest you can reuse, which has also a nice characteristic. Notice this this language frame you wrote in a separate process works with different editors. It's not a lock-in. Yeah.
3: So you mentioned uh, C sharp. I don't know if you've kind of been talking through this, but what's it like to author in C sharp in an editor like this versus in an IDE where you actually have the typical ah? When I'm done, I just hit a little button and everything compiles, and then I go and run. What's the diff? What's the difference in something like that?
1: Well, it's I, hopefully at the end of the day, it's not that that different. Um, <laughs> from uh, I mean, from a, a build and compile standpoint, you know, we do have debugging built in to VS code and debugging for managed code is is uh, certainly on its way here and so you know as you're writing code it's you're you're constantly getting feedback and it's it's constantly you know letting you know when you have errors and warnings so that you can just press F5 and then run your application if you want to do something like invoke make or sorry MS build on it, then it's, you can set it up basically as a, a task uh, or a command that runs from the command palette um, in much the same way that you basically do in Visual Studio. But instead of you know, invoking the build menu, you can just invoke it from the command palette. Um, so all that that core sort of, I called it before the, the inner loop, the edit compile debug loop is there, will be there shortly for managed code. The key bindings might be you know it might be going through the, the command palette instead of the menu system. There's no buttons obviously for um, a lot of
2: things, but that whole no flow wizards. is actually maybe still maybe there. maybe Chris, there is no built in wizards, right? You right,
0: right. So what's the ultimate goal with Visual Studio Code? Is it just to bridge that gap? Or are you hoping to open up coding to more people or you know, is there some loftier goal with this or is it just to make an awesome tool?
1: Well, I think the, the ultimate goal is is really to be able to have an offering for more people than we can offer to today, right? So we have an, a cross-platform offering, that great experience from, from Visual Studio, where there's a whole class of folks that couldn't use Visual Studio before. So we're we're trying to make the tooling and the great tooling from Visual Studio and from IDEs available to more and more developers. And so, you know, we actually, we, we did quite a few um, interviews with folks that don't run on windows they're you know either they were on windows or they've you know they run on the mac or it's been a long time since they've been on windows we kind of asked them what they want and what they think about visual studio and the, kind of the key things that they always bring up are the great editing and debugging experiences and so we felt like you know if we could bring those to more developers then that's a great development experience for more folks out there that that could benefit from from what we've built over the past 15 or 20 years with VS and so like i said it's the ultimate goal is to be able to just to, to provide larger set of developers with a better experience than they have today.
0: Yeah, I also want to point out that I think when we started the show, uh, Microsoft was the butt of about half of the jokes on the show. And Microsoft has done so many interesting and awesome things that we just don't do that anymore. And, you know, to hear you talk about this is just another way that Microsoft is making coding better for people. It's just cool.
1: At the fundamental level, that's what it, we're trying to do is just provide a better coding experience for for more folks. And then, you know, that opens up doors, right? You can have conversations with people. Um, maybe they're more likely to, to go and try something else from us. Maybe not. But, you know, what we've done is we've sort of elevated the quality of development and, and just made generally developers' lives better. And so eliminating that sort of negative perception of Microsoft that's been out there for so long is a good thing. It's a good thing for everybody. And uh, so it's it's actually it's, it's quite fun to have that be your objective.
4: So, just now you hinted at a couple of motivations for Visual Studio Code. One was maybe getting people to try other Microsoft products. And the other was basically, I'll call it marketing, where you're trying to get people to have a good impression of Microsoft. Does that sum up why Microsoft is investing in this, or is there more to it?
2: I, I guess you no. Know, what Microsoft wants to be, Microsoft wants to be relevant to developers on any platform. You can call this marketing, but to me, it's kind of you no. Know, we're in this space and you want to be relevant, right? And that's an investment you have to do because the worst thing that can happen, right? As a company that also invests in tool, you become irrelevant, irrelevant to the developers. So for us, it's a, it's a very serious investment. It's not marketing, right? It's, we want to be relevant to developers. And that's kind of the way to do it is with a tool that developers love, right? And that's what I want, what I want to do. I want to build a tool that developers love.
4: That's cool, so how many people are working on v s. code in Microsoft right now?
2: So there is my team in zurich we are We are nine uh, we are kind of the development the core development team, and then in Redmond, we have Chris as the p m that is with us since the beginning. Then we have now i guess well one one team is on sabbatical. we have another p m that started a month ago, and we have also some um, one developer. That helps us with the whole uh, data insights, right? Telemetry, data collection, and so on. But that's just the core, right? What you see is that now other teams in Microsoft build extensions on top of Visual Studio Code, like the Cordova extension became available. There is a team that builds the, the C-sharp the C debugger. There is, so now Chris had enough time to think about, right? What else is going on? <laughs> Uh, There's a GDB debugger. C++. I see C++. 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 Um, I,
1: I saw some IoT things being built. Um, lots of folks uh, doing SQL-type uh, packages for it. So across the board, there are uh, a number of teams at Microsoft that now have VS Code as a target to build an extension for to sort of broaden their uh, availability as well. So it's, it's, it's hard to put a number it
2: Yeah, the, this, this is kind of the, the whole ecosystem inside Microsoft, but I think what's important is during the development of the core, which was Studio Code, we were always a very small team, right? You were the the, the development team uh, in Zurich with the help of the PMs in Redmond, right?
0: Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what features do you uh, keep for the core team to work on versus things that you leave open for extensions from other groups, be them internal to Microsoft or community members?
2: That's a very good question right so it's it's to me it's an evolution right so for us it was very clear in the beginning we have to show think of us we're a small team and we think of us like a startup right we have to kind of show this technology of course we do lots of stuff right we we owned many languages now we we still own some of them but we owned c sharp for instance but as you move on, the plan is now that sell of these core uh, la- languages get taken out from us because with a team of eight developers, you cannot scale up. Right. Right. So that's why you move to this protocol-based uh, approach, which makes it easy, actually, that other teams can contribute. You have an extension API. And what you want to keep is the core platform, right? The core platform means the editor, the extension infrastructure, the API. And... The tools which we use to build VS code itself. That was kind of one way how we defined the boundary, right? So we want to own the extension builder experience end to end. But over time, no, we will, you're we more than happy now that you have this extension API, all the teams to contribute so that we can still be a small lean team, right? We don't want to double the core team. We want to keep it lean so that we have this integrity and we preserve the integrity that we are kind of proud of these days, mm. today. Just the history, you know, we, we started on that four and a half years ago. Initial focus, just an editor. Then we made different experiments where we can use it. We always find partners that use it, like OneDrive used it early on, which is the online uses it early on. And then we also had an online IDE experience for editing Azure websites. And then we kind of pivoted a year ago towards a, a desktop experience. Leveraging uh, electron.
3: That's interesting. That's quite the history.
2: Uh, It's a it's a really fun journey. Yeah. And initially we started with only JavaScript. Then TypeScript came along. We were one of the first adopters. Then we said, "Wow, this 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 rocks! Helps us to grow the code." So we we migrated everything to TypeScript. So we are now still one of the larger TypeScript applications with three hundred thousand lines of TypeScript code.
0: Oh wow! Yeah. So, if somebody decides, all right, I have to have an extension that adds random quotes to the code in comments. And they think that this is the next big, brilliant idea. How do they go about building that extension?
2: So, the nice thing is, right, you have the tool to write the extension with VS Code itself. You need a little generator, Yeoman, which is an open source scaffolding tool. You do an npm install of the Yeoman generator and generate a template, open the editor. Press F5 and you can start to explore our API using IntelliSense we provide for the API and to debug your extension within five minutes, right? This was our goal. And
0: you make it sound yeah. so easy.
2: <laughs> the the starting getting started, I think we really tried to make it make it easy, right? The API is kind of clean. I can elaborate later why we ended up with a clean API. And Yes, it's an API, but you have to learn it and you have a choice whether you want to write your extension in TypeScript or JavaScript. Um, we provide IntelliSense for both languages of the API. And feedback from people is that they could get started quickly, right? So that's what made us really happy when we got this feedback when it all was announced last November. And that might explain why we by now have a, a nice number of extensions in our, in our marketplace. So on the API story, right, what's interesting there is um, we really care about startup performance. And also we think of if you want to be really successful, you have lots of extensions. So and we also said no matter how many extensions we have, no matter what the extensions do, we want to always start fast and we'll always allow that the user can save its file. Right There's nothing worse than installing extensions and you can no longer save your file, you lose your work. So what we do is we have this isolation idea, right? We run extensions in a separate process, which is a, a node process, which runs separate. And then basically we have the core, which uses some IPC to talk to the extensions, which allows us to define a. Control the API 100%, right? There is no such thing as an internal methods you can reach because there's a process boundary in between other protocol. This allowed us kind of to, from the ground up to define an API, which should be consistent and easy to use. And also we isolated the core from extensions, right? Which gives us really some security. We can preserve the startup performance and you can, a user can always save a file. To be honest, right, it didn't simplify the architecture because you have to uh, process boundary in between, you have to do IPC and so on. But I think it has really paid off. So for instance, we don't expose the DOM, which is the whole uh, electron idea, right? You write your, your UI using HTML plus node. We don't expose the DOM to the extenders, right? Because we want to really have a controlled extensibility.
3: I'd like to ask what it was that drove you to choose... I mean, I know that you talked about the history. Maybe it was just sort of like one of those things that you just sort of went into, but the choice to use Electron to develop VS Code. Can you talk a little bit more about the background of that choice?
2: So what we saw is this desire to have a cross-platform tool, editor tool, a smart editor that should run cross-platform. The first thing we tried is, can we just give them the tool in the browser? And what we found is, this is great, if you want to really code send by 24, you really care about performance and so on. So the question for us was, can we bring this browser based experience, which this tuned editor that runs cross platform in a browser? Can we kind of allow him to break out of the browser jail and run as a desktop application? All right. This was kind of the pivot he made from running all in the browser online to running on a desktop to really give the speed, no latency, offline experience to a developer who wants to work 7 by 24 But online is great for some scenarios like playgrounds, you explore an API, you want to learn it. That's wonderful. And we still support that using our editor component. And then at the point, we kind of looked into what are the options. Of course, HTML was given and JavaScript, TypeScript, is code base we had. Then we looked into what kind of frameworks exist and at that point there was um what was the other one, Chris? There was Electron and the one before that. Node WebKit? Is that what it was called? I think it was called Node WebKit exactly. So these are this the first one was Node WebKit. Then we started it and it was very clear, right? The community goes from with the Electron based one. So we moved from Node WebKit to Electron and we now um on this journey, since a year, we try to contribute back by testing, giving bugs, and also helping with pull requests or whatever, whenever, wherever we can.
3: And so, so what's your of... overall ex- impression of Electron? How how happy are you with it? And what things is there anything specifically you feel like it's missing?
2: I think the whole development side, the community around Electron is great, right? If you look at kind of the apps that are built that are running on top of Electron, this shows there is a community, people buy into it. Node support is great, right? Having a Node API, so our extensions they are implemented, they can leverage the Node API, which is great, right? It's just it's just a great cross-platform API if you want to access files and processes and things like that. So what's missing, right? So what we are kind of working on right now is because you want to go to uh, general availability. We have, of course, some quality obligations when it comes to uh, accessibility and localization. And there, of course, we are currently have some challenges, you know how to interact with the native screen reader because some of the widgets we use are highly custom. So all the widgets we use, actually, they are custom built. They are virtual because they are, have to be large, right? The text widget is virtual, which means you only have the visible range in the DOM. We do the same with the tree. Whenever we, you update the things, it's as incremental as possible, right? In the tree, we do diffs, the compute differences, and so on. So this is very custom. But now comes the challenge. You want to provide accessibility, And how you do that, right? Because the screen readers don't like these custom things, right? So that's kind of a challenge. And that's where we currently have to do some serious investment. How can we get, for instance, accessibility screen reading support into Electron? And there was a code camp that was together with GitHub on that. And some some good work had happened out of that. But there is much more work needed to really be able to ship a product with Electron, which fulfills the accessibility Needs that you want from a desktop application. I kind of uh, feel like that, that, Microsoft, that Microsoft wants from a desktop application.
3: Yeah. I kind of feel like we should have you guys on again another time to just talk about Electron. <laughs> 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 One of the things that I really enjoyed about Visual Studio Code, VS Code, I've actually used it a ton. I really enjoyed how quick it was to get up and running with it, and that I, I didn't feel like I really had to learn something new. But one of the things that I really ended up wanting was the ability to launch it from the command line. And on my Mac, it took me a little bit of work of looking around to try to find somebody that had figured out how to get that to work on the command line.
2: Uh, yeah. So oh, it, To be, yeah. So we, on the Mac, we can only document how how to do it. We don't modify any on your bash profiles. But actually, it's documented, right? So we have the getting started tells you how to edit your bash profile and on windows we install the command line thing we add the the executable to your path but we don't do that on the mac on the linux currently that's correct yeah and that's really the pain i agree and it's on our backlog to improve that in our defense it's in the documentation i'm sorry that you didn't find it right but it's understandable you expect it just runs out of the box
3: you know, it's been a while since I did it, but if I remember correctly, I looked it up and found something, and maybe it was on your site, maybe it wasn't, I tried it, and it didn't quite work, and I had to fiddle around with something else, but it may have yeah. more to do with Mac. One of, Another thing that's maybe a little bit unique to me is I happen to use Bash on my Windows box, and so that's my typical editor, and that's when I haven't figured out how to launch VS Code from the command line with
2: Okay. Okay. So, yeah. That's what I don't know, actually, how <laughs> well you're we there. Right? Come on. But- you don't know that
3: off the top of your head? <laughs> That's got to be a super common use case. Everybody on Windows is using a Bash shell, right?
2: <laughs> but, uh, it's on the Mac we run on Bash, so you could have just <laughs> used the, the, uh, the setup instructions for Mac OS X and... Add this function code, VS code, current working directories equals $pwd open minus n minus b. Oh no, the bundle name. I see. <laughs> got uh, it. That's the bundle name. Yeah. Ah, okay. Got it. Okay. Ah, it's all in. Ah, yeah. Okay. I, <laughs> <laughs> it's Mac specific. Yeah. It's still right. bash. Yeah. Right. So the idea is how to do that, right? On first launch, we asked you to, should you update your, your bash profile, things like that? But we just didn't get to that yet. Yeah.
3: One small question I'd like to ask is, Unlike, say, Sublime Text, VS Code doesn't use a tabbed interface. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's not like tabs are not an editor paradigm. Obviously, like Vim <sighs> it doesn't use tabs, but Sublime does. Vim doesn't? Oh, doesn't. Okay. Uh,
2: I don't know. I, I, I bet you're right. You Vim can use doesn't. tabs in Vim. Can you? You can. Okay. Yeah. L- l- let me start with that. And, um, Chris <laughs> you can put think... any
4: word in place of tabs, and it would be true with Vim.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Real editors use buffers. Just saying. <laughs>
4: buffers, you
5: can use buffers in yes. Vim, too.
4: You can use Emacs in Vim, just so you know, Chat.
2: <laughs> these days, we call them text documents, right? In our way, it's, it's because we're open to different media in the future, maybe. know, but the history is uh, we started in the browser, and we were really um, aggressive dog fools. And when you run in a browser, the browser already has tabs. So one of the things we told us, you don't want to have tabs in Tabs. So that's why we really started with a tab-free experience and started to tune it as much as possible. That was one thing. The other thing, we have quite some experience with other IDEs and there is this word, this ugly word like tab hell. I guess everybody knows what this is, right? If you have hundreds of file opens, then the tabs show you one letter and three dots and so on. And you wanted to avoid that. So we have a highly tuned tab-free experience and we now get the feedback What about uh, adding tabs? So there's two approaches to that, right? We want to find out what is missing from the current one because we think tab hell is not a good thing. But you understand the need. Some people are used to access their working files and have a visual representation. So we are kind of working right now on on these. But if you look at the history, we want to avoid tab hell. And we use it dog fooded since for years, highly tuned, and we really love it. And we try to convince (laughs) many others that you can be very fast without tabs and without having to manage tabs, right? That's the whole point. You don't want to manage these tabs open-close because 90% of the time I open a file just because I want to read it, right? I don't want to manage it. I want to quickly look something up, but I don't want to manage a tab just because I look at a file.
5: I feel like... Every time there's another. So tab, I'm a right?
2: passionate that. i mean, so Chris. You maybe do the middle ground, right?
5: No, I like your statements.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's it's all that's exactly how it's progressed, and uh, we still have we we still have ideas of tweaking the existing model a little bit. It's not it's not perfect, but we do think there's quite a bit of merit there in the experience that we've got right now.
5: Jamison, what were you going to say? I was just going to say every time I use a tabbed editor, I feel like. Every open tab is an item on a to-do list, and it just stresses me out.
2: (laughs) I love that. An item on a to-do list, yeah. That's why it feels like tab-hole, right? Yeah, yeah.
5: yeah. I don't want to-do lists. I want to get stuff done. I don't want to clean up after my tabs is like part of my workflow.
0: I'll just give you my to-do list after I check everything off. Great. I
5: will say I'm very
3: used to tabs and getting into VS Code and not having tabs. It didn't take me very
5: long before I got used to not having tabs. You can do tabs in Vim, but I don't know how, and and that lack of knowledge made my life better. <laughs> <And a> blissful <laughs> ignorance.
0: Yeah, I can just say that as I use Emacs, it's really easy to pull up the list of open buffers, and then you can just pick the file you want to be in.
5: That's the other aspect
1: with the command palette. It's just a quick keyboard combination to, to cycle through, yeah, basically what your working set of files is mm-hmm. or, or get access to another one. And so that's the flow that we, we really got into was just using that model instead of having to manage the tabs
5: so i would say probably the the most talented developer on my team uses vs code oh uh, you do huh? he, no definitely not. <laughs>
1: that was that awesome
4: is, <laughs> like, humble brag <laughs> certainly not,
5: <laughs> and he's super excited about it but do you have any kind of idea on what the uptake is like how many people are using it if they're coming from visual studio itself are they coming from other things or stuff like that
2: I think what we said at Connect, we have a 1 million unique installs since One, last May, right? 1 million? Yep. Wow. Unique installs. Unique installs. And yeah. since Connect, is was from, since November, and I don't have the last numbers in mind, but it went up. The curve goes steadily up.
1: We don't know what the overlap is between Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code users are. And there's no, you know, you don't have to log in to... User Code, so we can't correlate people between that. All we can do is sort of make inferences from you know number of users on Windows versus Mac and Linux. But we don't have any way to correlate those two together. Or if people are moving back and forth, or if they're using both, or what the what that behavior is.
2: And you also see a uh, Mac user and Linux users, right? So it's uh, it's definitely we, we achieved a cross-platform goal. I think thirty percent are Mac or more.
3: So I have a question. For those of us who are uh, panelists on this podcast, can you guys give us a free license to VS Code?
5: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I think we already got
3: one. Did
5: you really? Yes. Nice. You're on the, the secret inner core of panelists then you can
2: have two licenses if you want
5: oh you guys are just too generous (laughs) we can
2: give an insider license and a stable license (laughs) (laughs) actually there's systems behind that we just released that uh, last night right you work on that you we have kind of we really love frequent updates and feedback on whatever we do we do monthly things and what you support now we have kind of an insider product which is where you update more frequently which gets out earlier and you have a stable product which is kind of the, the stable one so and they can run side by side right this is why you can have two licenses if you want but both are free <laughs> so, That side by side development channel thing how we call it, is is really something like yeah uh,
3: does microsoft actually charge for anything it makes anymore <laughs> Office windows English. is free i yeah i guess the office but they charge me so little now. Like I, I think I spent you 100 bucks. and I got
4: five installs. Tons of enterprise contracts and stuff too, maybe. Yeah. Also, I noticed that the VS Code license allows me to make one or more backup copies of the software for reinstalling it if I need to. <laughs> so just keep that in mind, everybody.
5: That's, that's, know. Know. that's any number. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, those incredible. are standard pre-release licenses.
4: <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, Is the intention, maybe you already said this, but isn't the intention for VS Code to be free forever?
1: Uh, We don't have any uh, immediate plans for charging for it. It's kind of hard to go back and start charging for it. There may be (coughs) extensions or experiences that over time we feel like have some amount of value where we could charge for it. But for VS Code itself, we have no intentions to
2: put a dollar sign on it. And you already see that some extensions for Visual Studio Code, which are not done by Microsoft, they charge for them, right? So the core is free, and they charge for an extension. It's not not Microsoft, but you see this is not an uncommon pattern, right? That extensions on top of a free platform get charged for.
1: Yeah, the extension is typically free. It's the service behind it that, yeah. that you then hmm.
3: pay for. Sure, that makes sense. Well, I've certainly loved uh, having VS Code as an option. I really like Sublime as a simple text editor, which I've used a lot. I'm not really a VI or... Vim, Mac, Emacs guy, either. So I've really liked what it has offered and felt like they've done a great job. You guys have done a great job putting out an editor. I use it on both my platforms, Windows and Mac. And so far, I've had really no complaints.
2: So, in what languages do you use code with? Mostly JavaScript, TypeScript. JavaScript. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, we did an exciting update, I guess, uh, for, for the insiders uh, last night. We have this new TypeScript-powered JavaScript, which really beefs up the current JavaScript support, adds JS Doc support, and more traditional, like uh, IntelliSense, Altive Views, kind of the prototype pattern to write classes, and so on. So please give it a try. I think that's pretty nice.
3: You know, I will say I did notice one thing. Yeah. I upped my font size in VS Code to a higher font size, And it didn't, like, the font size that it had listed didn't match up with the same exact font size in a different product. Like, it was smaller or bigger. I I can't remember. I think it was smaller. Like, I had to put it to like 20 to give me what was, what seemed like it was 16 in a different product. That's (laughs) a weird complaint to make, but. (laughs) Yeah. See, see, the whole
2: rendering, of course, (laughs) the whole rendering is is really done by Chrome. And that's very, we're sensitive on that too. But yeah, file an issue and. Uh, we look into it. Yeah.
4: So Joe, how was the kerning?
3: Like, was it pretty good?
2: <laughs> it was the no, best you, kerning I'd had all day.
3: <laughs>
5: I could say that. Well,
2: but we, that's one feature we support are li- li- ligatures, ligatures, lig, come on, help me on ligatures. that. Chris. I don't know how to say that word. I can't. No, Ligatures. I don't know. So that's I a new thing. It. And we got an, a contribution that enables ligatures, right? That you can finally see great equals as one glyph rendered, right? So that's if you have to write font.
4: Which is just... Every time I make a font snob joke, I learn about some new term <laughs> that I have no idea.
5: <laughs> so I wanted to ask a little bit about the experience of, of designing a UX for developers. How, where do you come up with ideas and kind of a, a goal for what you want the workflow to be? It seems like there are so many editors that, I mean, there, the, you have the old ones that have been around forever. And then there's just an explosion of newer editors too, that there's just a lot of choice? Do you just look at what's out there already and kind of pick the good things? Or do you have a set vision in your mind of what you're trying to achieve and, and just go for that?
1: We've been doing development for quite a while. Combined, The, the combined number of years of doing development and building development tools is, is pretty high. And so a lot of the, the end-to-end experiences come from, from really our own usage and dogfooding of the tool. Um, what works well for us in developing an extension or developing TypeScript applications or JavaScript applications and really trying to fine-tune our own experiences of what comes out in the product itself. And then the other thing that we do is when we do have different design experiences that we want to bring in, we spend a lot of time sort of experimenting with the experience, trying it out, getting feedback, failing fast, you know, both in the product and on paper and slides and just trying to see uh, what kind of feedback we get. And then as we release a, an experience in the product, again, list, looking at the telemetry data, looking at, at feedback on Twitter and on the forums uh, and on Stack Overflow and on GitHub, and seeing if we have to go in, and tweak those experiences based on how people are are using them. I think the thing that's, that's interesting is that we're not fixated on, okay, this is how the experience must be. And we don't try to paint and build a, a very monolithic end-to-end experience before we put something out there. We try to approach it in a very incremental fashion and tweak it and turn it. And if we have to revert it, go for something better, we'll, we'll go and do that. We're not afraid of you know, rewriting a, a chunk of code for a better end-to-end experience. And So it's a different kind of model. You know, When you're delivering a tool every month, every three to four weeks, you just have to sort of get in this mode of delivering a little bit by a little bit by a little bit, having this sort of north star, this is where we want to go, but getting feedback on it and trying things out um, and being... Willing to pivot when you get the feedback that says this isn't work, uh, this isn't working, is uh, the approach that we try to take. Um, it's definitely different from from building a you know large box software that you know maybe doesn't have automatic update and you know we, we just have this luxury of being able to ship so frequently that we can we can do it and, and work in this fashion.
2: I think you know what Chris mentioned this whole when you do developer tools you get this dog fooding thing right and we started actually I think four months of develop we switched over to only use our tool. And since then, what we do is we constantly tune it, right? We constantly improve it. Do we like the filtering in the quick open box, right? Do we tune? It's since four years, it's constant to you tuning. And what really helps us also here is HTML, Technology, right? With HTML, you have so much more freedom when it comes to UI using CSS and using effects than with traditional widgets. If you would have coded all with a traditional UI toolkit. And I think this really helped us to explore things and then to, to, to the constant tuning. And I think constant tuning HTML as an infrastructure, which allows you to experiment with new UI things, um, really helped. And then. Chris mentioned the, what Stephen did, what these interviews, we really get people in, we see them, how they use the tool, what is their startup experience, right? This is another good input to then further tune the thing. It's not only our own feedback that matters, also feedback from others. And now we open source, right? We get a ton more feedback, which we can track. And, and <laughs> for
5: better still. or for worse?
2: Yes, the tabbing one you mentioned, right? That's a very passionate bug. A lot of, uh, a lot issue, of plus issue. ones on that. Yes, these are the helpful plus ones, uh, right?
5: Yes, so yes
2: yeah but it was a really fun journey yeah given what we had and we want to be proud on our tool right so we want to be i want to be proud show it to my friends and that's kind of to me the benchmark right yeah and the best compliment you heard right like someone said talent developing a team he loves it right that's what what i live for right even so i spend most of my time these days reading github issues right
0: (laughs) all right well i'll make a uh,
2: github issue that's just
5: like you're awesome, and then you can plus one it and close it.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. Nice. <laughs> all right. Well, should we get to picks? Oh, all right. All right, Joe, what are your picks? All
3: right. Well, the my my number one pick, which I'm super excited about today, is February 2nd that we're recording, and this pre the trailer came out for Lego Star Wars The Force Awakens. Woohoo! Yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's so dang hilarious. (laughs) super funny. It's like the same trailer that was for The the Force Awakens just done in Lego with their comedy thrown in. So funny. I love the Lego games. They're so much fun to play. I played them some with my wife, some with my kids. And uh, even though they start, they're getting lower and lower scores every time a new game comes out because they're doing the same old thing. I love them because they are doing the same old thing. It's, it's something that works. It's super fun game, great comedy. And I'm sure there's a ton of writing that goes into it to put in the right kind of comedy, which I just think is great. And they are making the games incrementally better, of course. But I'm a huge fan of Lego games and all the stuff that they've done. So I'm a really big fan of this game. I'm excited for it. So I'll be my first pick. And then my second pick is going to be Firebase. I've been doing a bunch of work with Firebase recently. And I just love that product. I think it's a great product. So those are my picks.
5: All
0: right. Jameson, what are your picks?
5: I have three. The first is an issue on NPM. Um, it, it was an issue from people complaining about the speed of NPM. Uh, and then Sam, I forgot how to say his name. I should Wise Ganji. Yeah. Sam Cohn or something like that. I don't know. A famous JavaScript dude he just jumped in and just dropped this super in-depth really well documented performance analysis of what specifically the bug was and what was causing it and he showed all these cool tools and all these awesome graphs from the chrome dev tools in node and uh then turned it into like a tree graph of the calls and it was just like a tour de force of how to debug performance problems in node applications and it was it was very nice and very helpful too so it wasn't like here's how your crap is broken, jerks. It was like, I spent a lot of time to figure out how, and this is how I figured it out, and here's how you can figure it out too. Uh, so that was cool. My second pick is, I've picked this before, but I'm picking it again. You can't stop me. It's a game called Darkest Dungeon. It's a turn-based dungeon crawl game that has a lot of, like, Lovecraft elements in. You kind of take this team of adventurers through this dungeon, and they all die. It's super hard. Your, your people die a lot but it's just really well done. The dialogue and the art direction and just it just oozes style. It's really good. And it just came out of early access, I think. And my last pick is a Twitter thread from Trek. We've had him on the show once or twice. He's an Ember core team member, but he was talking about interviewing. Interviewing is my nerd passion topic that I just rant about sometimes. And he he talked about how he followed people who they had interviewed and passed on and just seen how successful they had been in their careers after that. And it was just kind of like a little bit of interview nihilism that nothing matters and you can't know the truth of anything at all. and Life is hard. And then it turned into some good advice about how to interview better. Those are my picks.
0: All right. I've got a couple of uh, picks. The first one is something I'm sitting on. Um, it is a... A Mogo portable seat that comes with a black black cushion on it. Um, You can get different colors. What it is is I have this standing desk, and I moved all my podcast equipment to it. I think I mentioned that a few times. And on Tuesdays, I record three podcasts. I'm actually trying to move Adventures in Angular over to Tuesday so I can just get four of them done on Tuesdays. But because it's at the standing desk, sometimes it gets a little bit long. And I didn't want to get a chair for my standing desk because I felt like it kind of defeated the point. So what this is, is it has one leg, it's kind of a one-legged stool, and the other two legs of the stool are your own legs. And so I'm still standing up, but I'm leaning on it, uh, leaning back on it a little bit. And so uh, when I just get really worn down, or if I've been running around because I wrecked my car and been trying to get it fixed, (laughs) like today, uh, I'm pretty tired, and so it's nice to be able to not have to just stand up the whole time I can lean back on it a little bit. It's also good because I, I'm kind of trying to work up to the point where I can stand most of the day, but I don't know just how quickly that I'll get to that. So so yeah, I'm going to pick that. And then one other thing that I'm going to pick, I have a whiteboard in my office. This is my home office. And I found online this really cool acrylic wall mountable rack holder for my uh, whiteboard for all the markers and eraser. And so I'm really excited to get that all organized. I got my office mostly cleaned before we went down to my in-laws this weekend. And uh, that'll be nice because then I can just pull them out of there instead of trying to figure out where I put them last. So uh, I'll put links to both of those in the show notes. I got them both on Amazon. I also got my wife an Amazon Echo for her birthday. I'm not sure exactly how nice or not nice that is. But if you know anything about that, if you have any suggestions for it, shoot me an email, chuck at devchat.tv. That way, I can wow her even more after I give it to her. So, so Chuck, uh huh.
3: If you get to where you can stand all days, like the next step to stand one-legged all day long, and
0: that's right, and then no-legged, <laughs> yeah, I'll just use the force and float. A bit.
3: I was thinking maybe you'd like hold onto a bar with one hand and just hang all day long, type with the other.
0: Well, you know that's how I code anyway, <laughs> and I eat a banana that I'm holding my foot. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, could yeah, could do. Could do. Standing on your head and coding, maybe. Oh, don't tempt me.
2: <laughs> All right, Eric, what are your picks? So in between uh, GitHub issues reading, today I found a link to a very old paper which just made me happy. It was a, it's a technical memorandum Why Bitplit is So Successful from 1984 from Rob Pike, Lea Gubas, and Dan Ingalls. Rob Pike, now behind Go, Dan Ingalls, uh, uh, talk, right? It's just, Wonderful engineering, right? So bit blit. This was the time when you had no color, one bit deep bitmaps. And they show what y'all can do with this universal operation to, to do character rendering, to do scrolling, to show a pop-up menu by bit blitting the background away. And then you blit it back in how fast it is or oh, flood fill, right? This was to me a nice time warp and, um, uh, I really enjoyed it. And I think sometimes you should just go back and read some of these old papers just to see how far we have gone, right, when it comes to compositing and so on these days. That's my pick.
0: Cool. Chris, what are your picks?
1: Uh Let's see. I think we talked about this a little bit, which I'm really excited about, is the salsa, is the... Code name of the TypeScript JavaScript language service that we're, we're starting to adopt in, in VS Code. So I'll send a link to that. It's, uh, it's really going to be fantastic. And the, like another thing that we talked about is, you know, it has JSX support. Uh, so there's all sorts of really cool things that are in there. So from a, uh, a JavaScript and TypeScript language, uh, experience in VS Code, I'm. Super excited to see us picking that up. The next thing is, I just actually got. I'm sure people have talked about this in the past, but I I just got myself the Microsoft Band, and uh, it's interesting to be able to track sort of your data day in and day out. Um, I find it most interesting to see how well my sleeping is going and uh, what what has impact on my sleeping. Like I don't sleep as well on the weekends. I don't know why. Um, but but that's pretty cool to be able to to track that and see how how the nights go. And the last thing is I just binge-watched Making a Murderer. I don't know if you guys have watched that or if I'm uh, way out of date, but uh I think it was 10 or 11 episodes which was uh quite a disturbing and saddening docu series uh but highly recommended, very very interesting to watch.
0: I keep hearing about it but I haven't watched it. It well, takes
1: you got to you got to give the first couple episodes your time and then it picks up speed
0: nice one other thing i just want to mention if you're in europe uh when this episode goes out i will be in amsterdam and i'm going to hold a meetup. when this episode goes out it goes out on a wednesday i'm holding the meetup that night so if you're interested uh hop on the mailing list or shoot me an email or tweet at me and i'll let you know uh where we're going to be at in amsterdam I'm going to be out there for the ng-nl conference, and uh, I'm looking forward to meeting some folks.
5: I just want to note that no one picked design patterns, and that seems like a shame.
2: <laughs> oh, come on.
5: <laughs> Are you just sick to death of of like everyone asking you about design patterns when you're talking about other
0: stuff?
2: I say I still love them all, but uh, I don't want to be reduced to design patterns, right?
0: Sure. I love yeah. them like children, but they've all moved out.
2: <laughs> you know, it's really like that you love all your children right but uh, yes and then the whole javascript technology right is so rich if you think of patterns and if i wouldn't know how much work it is to write the book it would be beautiful to do one but yeah.
5: <laughs> <laughs> so someone else should do a javascript design patterns update sounds like yeah yeah no
2: but thanks for the reminder <laughs> in case you forgot. Yeah. I still need to get the first one. Yeah. I promised you we'll sign it once you buy it, Chris. I know, I know. It's too big to bring on the plane. Yeah.
0: Boy, if we keep talking about this, so will somebody's head. Okay. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. It was a lot of fun to talk about, and hopefully thank we'll get you. some people interested in it. Yeah, Thanks, thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, no problem. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CacheFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CacheFly. Visit CACHEFLY.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests.